Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi. My name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Now before we get it started today, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday and also upload the video version onto YouTube as well and you are not going to want to miss it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now for today's episode, as you guys can tell by the title, today we are talking about the unsolved murder of Jacqueline DeWallaby. Jacqueline was only seven years old when she was murdered in September of 1988, and to this day, this case still remains unsolved. Now, there are a lot of theories that come along with this case. There are a lot of almosts when it comes to solving this case. However, again, like I have mentioned, it still remains unsolved. So I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one. We have not done an unsolved case in quite some time, so I figured that this would be a perfect one for today. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it. Jacqueline DeWallaby was born on May 17th, 1981, which means that if you guys are listening to this episode on the day that it was released, which is May 17th, it is actually Jacqueline's birthday today. Today, Jacqueline would have been 42 years old. Jacqueline DeWallaby was born to her mother, Cynthia, and her biological father, Jim Guess. But Jacqueline later went on to be adopted by her stepfather, David DeWallaby, after David and Cynthia got married. Jacqueline also had a little brother named Davy, who was three years younger than her. The four of them lived together in Midlothian, Illinois, along with David's mother, Anna, who lived in the basement of the home. So altogether, this household held five people. To give you a little bit of context, Midlothian is about an hour away from Chicago, Illinois, and in 1990 had a population of roughly 14,000 people. Now, the house that they were all living in was actually previously owned by Anna, David's mother. So Anna owned the house, and David, Cynthia, Jacqueline, and Davy all moved in shortly after they got married. So you had five people living in the house and Anna lived in the basement of the home. Like I mentioned, she had converted the basement of the home into her own makeshift studio apartment. So she had her own space in the home and the rest of the family took over the main living areas. Now, like I mentioned in the beginning, Jacqueline DeWallaby was only seven years old at the time of her murder, and she was a happy-go-lucky girl. She loved seeing her friends, she had a very bubbly personality, and she was super close to her family, especially her younger brother, Davey. Her and Davey had a very close and loving relationship. 
Now, the last time that anyone had seen Jacqueline alive was on Friday, September 9th of 1988. On this particular night, David had come home from work at about 5.30, and he was only home for 30 minutes before leaving again at 6 p.m. to go bowling at this place called the Anchor Bowl. So he was only home for a short period of time and returned home several hours later at around 9.20 p.m. By the time David had walked through the door, everyone in the family was sitting in the living room, watching TV, all hanging out together, including David's sister, Michelle, who had come over during the time that he was away. However, shortly after David returned home, Michelle ended up leaving herself. Now, Jacqueline actually didn't end up going to bed that night until about 10.30. She grabbed a Christmas catalog that was sitting in the living room, and she took it into her room with her when she told everyone goodnight. Now, Jacqueline didn't end up going to bed that evening until about 10.30 at night. At that time, she grabbed a Christmas catalog from the living room, and she told everyone goodnight before she walked into her bedroom. But little did anyone know that that would be the last time that Jacqueline would see her family again. Now, according to both David and Cynthia, David went to bed shortly after Jacqueline did. However, Cynthia and Davey stayed up together watching some TV. Davey fell asleep in the living room while Cynthia remained awake watching television for a little bit until she decided herself to go to bed. Now, around the same time that Jacqueline went to sleep, so around that 10.30 p.m. mark, David's mom, Anna, decided that she was going to go out and get her Friday night started. She had gone out to a restaurant called Papachino's, located in Oak Forest. Now, with this house's layout, there was no basement door. So even though Anna resided in the basement for most of the time, if she ever did want to leave the house, she would have to walk upstairs and walk either out of the front door or the back door. There was no entry or exit from the basement. So in order to leave that specific night, she walked upstairs and walked out the back door. The reason she walked out of the back door instead of the front door was because she only had a key to the back door. The front and the back door had two separate keys and she only had one of them. So she walked out of the back door that night before she left. And according to Anna, she said she was a thousand percent certain that she locked that back door when she left. But regardless, Anna stayed out the remainder of that Friday night. She actually didn't return home until the next morning, September 10th. So by Anna's account, she was out the entirety of Friday night. Now, the next morning on September 10th, David and Cynthia were woken up by their alarm at around 7.30. But once they realized that it was a Saturday, they shut their alarm off and slowly drifted back to sleep for about 30 more minutes before Davy came running into the bedroom wanting his parents to wake up. Now, David decided that he was going to let Cynthia get a little bit more sleep, so he got up with Davy and walked out into the living room. Now, when David got out into the living room, the first thing he noticed was that the front door was left open. Now, without thinking much of it, David just shut the front door and sat down on the couch with Davy to watch some TV until Cynthia became awake around 9 a.m. and also walked out into the living room. 
When Cynthia got into the living room, she asked David if Jacqueline was awake yet, to which he responded with no. And that is when Cynthia walked into Jacqueline's bedroom, only to find that Jacqueline was not there. Once Cynthia noticed that Jacqueline was not in her bed, she ran into the living room to tell David, and that is when the two of them began searching throughout the entire house to see if Jacqueline was there. They started looking outside as well. They were going into the front yard, the backyard. They got into their car and started searching the neighborhood. And it was around that time that Anna had also finally returned home from her Friday night outing. And she was given the news that Jacqueline was nowhere to be found. Now, Cynthia did return back into Jacqueline's bedroom to see if there were any clues left behind as to where Jacqueline could have gone, and that is when she noticed that there was something very important missing from Jacqueline's bedroom, and that was her comforter. The entirety of Jacqueline's comforter was missing from her bed and was also nowhere to be found. And this is when Cynthia and David really started to get alarmed because if Jacqueline were to just wake up and wander off to a friend's house or whatever else she had planned to do, there was no reason for her to bring her comforter. So the fact that that was missing was very alarming. At this point, Cynthia had began walking over to the next door neighbor to try and see if they had seen Jacqueline. However, on her way over there is when she noticed that one of the windows in the basement of her home had been broken into. Now, the window had been completely shattered, and it was concerning because the size of the window was big enough for someone to crawl through. So from Cynthia's point of view, It seemed to her as if she had just discovered the entry point of the intruder that came into her house. And so at that point, when Cynthia and David saw the broken window is when they decided to call 911 at 1031 a.m. on September 10th to report Jacqueline as missing. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Priceline. 
Now, when police arrived to the home and began their investigation, they saw that the window that had been broken was facing the backyard. And because of the way that the house was found the following morning, police started to believe that whoever did this had broken in through the basement window, grabbed Jacqueline, and left with her out the front door of the home, which would explain why the front door was open when David woke up the following morning. Now, police were able to retrieve phone records from the Dewallaby home and saw this sequence of phone calls on the morning of the 10th, which is the morning that they discovered Jacqueline missing. At 9.46 a.m., there was a one-minute phone call to Cynthia's sister-in-law named Sylvia. At 9.52 a.m., there was a phone call to one of Jacqueline's friend's parents. Then at 9.57 a.m., there was a one-minute phone call to Jim Gatt who is Jacqueline's biological father. At 10.25 a.m., there was a five-minute phone call to a local restaurant called WAGS. Then at 10.31 a.m., the phone call was made to the Midlonian police to report Jacqueline as a missing person. Now, the first officer to arrive on the scene was an officer named Donald Woodark. And when Officer Woodark arrived on the scene, David let him inside of the home and told him that he believed there was a break-in and now Jacqueline was missing. David then took Officer Woodark outside to show him the broken basement window. There was glass laying around the area where the window was located and the screen in the window looked like it had been ripped back. When Officer Woodark got to Jacqueline's room, he noticed that the dresser had its drawers open and that there were clothing items hanging outside of the dresser. Jacqueline's bed appeared to have been pulled out at an angle, which David and Cynthia admitted to when they were trying to look for Jacqueline. There was also an open suitcase on Jacqueline's bed with clothes in and around it, but David and Cynthia claimed that that was something that Jacqueline liked to do for fun. Now, after going in to Jacqueline's bedroom, police then went into the basement to assess that area. And when they went down there, they noticed that the basement, which was Anna's room, was not ransacked. It was not robbed. It not it didn't appear to be in disarray. This didn't seem like a robbery gone wrong. Everything in Anna's room was still left intact. It was left in its place. And it didn't seem like someone was going into the basement because they wanted to take something. Now, something else that police noticed when it came to this broken window was that there was a very even and thin layer of dust laying on the windowsill of the broken window. Now, the reason that this caught authorities' attention was because if someone were to climb through that window, authorities believed that in the process of doing so, they probably would have disrupted that even layer of dust, whether that be with their leg their foot, their hand, their arm. Somewhere along the way, there might be a print made in that dust. However, because there was no print and it was still a thin, even layer that looked untouched, police started to raise their speculations a little bit. On September 10th, a forensic exam was done on the window, and that is when they were able to confirm that there were no hair fibers or shoe prints or any sort of fingerprints on the window. Forensic examiners also claimed that they found smear marks 
on Jacqueline's bedroom door. However, they were unable to retrieve any fingerprints from them and they did not specify as to what the smear marks were from and where they derived from. Now, the initial days of the investigation were absolutely brutal for the Dewalabi family. Between September 10th and September 14th, the police and the FBI completely overtook the Dewalabi home trying to look for any clues that could lead them to what happened. But then, on September 14th of 1988, Jacqueline's body was discovered three miles away from her family home in brush and bushes right next to an abandoned parking lot in an apartment complex. She was discovered by a man named Michael Chapman, who lived at the Islander Apartments in Blue Island, Illinois. Michael arrived home that evening at 5.45 p.m. and parked in the back parking lot. When he got out of his car, he claimed he smelled something very off-putting, and that is when he started searching through the bushes. When doing that, he discovered a body wrapped in a multicolored quilt with a sheet covering everything except a face. And that is when Michael discovered the body of Jacqueline DeWallaby and immediately called the police. Now, at this point in the decomposition process, Jacqueline's body had been completely taken over by maggots. There was also a rope tied tightly twice around Jacqueline's neck. However, besides the rope, there were no other signs of injuries. There were no visible bruises or cuts or scrapes on her body. There was also a clean pair of underwear found a foot away from Jacqueline's body, and the underwear was tested, but there were no signs of any blood or bodily fluid found in them. Now, the medical examiner, Dr. Robert Stein, conducted the autopsy on Jacqueline on September 15th, and in his report, he stated that due to the weather conditions and how humid and warm it was, it was hard to determine what happened to Jacqueline or when the time frame that she died was because her body was so badly decomposed due to the thousands of maggots that were covering her body when she was discovered. So because of that, Dr. Stein used alternate methods to try and figure out what happened to Jacqueline. They did an x-ray of her body that showed that she had no fractures, no broken bones, and no bullets. He was able to rule out that there was no head injury or no blunt force trauma. And again, there were no bruises on her arms or her legs or anywhere on her body. There were actually very little markings on her at all. There were no markings on her wrist, showing that her wrists had been tied together. Same goes for her ankles. There was no marking on her mouth to show that she had been duct taped. So there were very little visible markings on Jacqueline. However, the official cause of death for Jacqueline DeWallaby was confirmed to be ligature strangulation. But again, due to the state of decomposition that Jacqueline's body was in, they were unable to determine whether or not Jacqueline had been sexually assaulted. Now, another forensic examiner stated that in the rope that was found around Jacqueline's neck, there were three hair fibers that were found in that rope. Two of the hairs belonged to Jacqueline, and the third was not consistent with Jacqueline or any of the Dewalabies. 
Now, when forensic examiners went back and examined the bed sheets on Jacqueline's bed, which still were on the bed, because remember, the comforter was not there. The comforter is what Jacqueline's body was wrapped in, but the bed sheets and the bedspread were still on her bed. And so when forensic examiners went back and looked at the bedspread, they found five different blood stains on the bed. However, they were unable to determine how old the blood stains were, and they were also unable to determine whether the blood stains came from a human or an animal. Police also searched all throughout both of the Dewalabi's cars. They looked in Cynthia's car. They looked in David's car. However, they were unable to find any blood in those cars either. Now, from the beginning of this investigation, authorities were really focusing on only two different theories and angles that this case could have gone in that led to Jacqueline's murder. The first being that this was a crime of opportunity, that someone knew that Jacqueline was inside of the home and deliberately made a plan to abduct and murder her. However, the second theory was that the Dewalabies themselves, specifically Cynthia and David, Jacqueline's parents were the ones responsible for her death. Both Cynthia and David were interrogated for hours on end, and David took a polygraph test on September 10th in regards to Jacqueline's disappearance that he ended up passing. However, several days later on September 14th, before Jacqueline's body was recovered, he took a second polygraph test, which came back inconclusive, and police were especially suspicious in this test in particular because David refused to answer the question of, did you kill your daughter? Police were really starting to form an opinion that David and Cynthia were responsible for this, and this theory was strengthened when a transit worker named Everett Mann told police that he claimed to see a man that looked similar to David sitting in a parked Chevy Malibu car near where Jacqueline's body was found at 2 a.m. on September 10th. He described the car as a dark blue color, and whenever it was given a photo lineup, he chose David as being the man that he saw on the night of the disappearance. There were also two additional witnesses who came forward and claimed that they saw Cynthia's car near the parking lot where Jacqueline's body was found. Now, Cynthia's lawyers dismissed these claims very quickly, saying that they could confirm that Cynthia's car was in front of the Dewalaby home at the same time that those witnesses were reporting to see it. Now, regardless, police were so sure of their circumstantial evidence because that's really all it was at this point was purely circumstantial evidence. They were so sure of that circumstantial evidence that they ended up arresting both Cynthia and David in November of 1988. So only two months after Jacqueline's murder, David and Cynthia were arrested and were set to be charged with the murder of their daughter, Jacqueline. Now, at the time that she was arrested, Cynthia was actually two months pregnant, meaning that she had gotten pregnant right around the same time that Jacqueline had gone missing. And even though both Cynthia and David were arrested for this, they maintained their innocence the whole way through. Both David and Cynthia were put on trial in April of 1990. And now again, the only witness that the prosecution had was Everett 
man. And the defense tried to discredit him wherever they could. They tried to say that Everett was 75 yards away from that parking lot. So there was no way that he was going to be able to get a good visual of what the car was, let alone who the person in the car was because it was 2 a.m. It was dark outside. There weren't any street lights. And so it would have been nearly impossible for him to be able to accurately assume that he saw David. Another point that the defense made was that when police gave Everett this photo lineup that he chose David from, David's picture for some reason was 30% larger than the rest of the men in the lineup which the defense tried to argue was an automatic unfair advantage for Everett to choose David. And when it came to the window, the basement window that was broken, the prosecution was trying to claim that David and Cynthia set up this whole plot to make it seem like there was an intruder who came into the house, who broke the window, and that that was the story that they were trying to go with. But forensics actually showed that the window was broken from the outside, not the inside. And the defense tried to argue that if David or Cynthia were responsible for this, why wouldn't they just break the window from the inside? The defense also played a video of David's neighbor crawling through the window to prove that the window is big enough that someone could crawl through it without disrupting that even layer of dust because the prosecution really honed in on that fact. They stated that there was no way that this even layer of dust would still be there if someone actually did attempt to crawl through the window. However, that theory was disproven when the neighbor was able to do so without disrupting the dust. Now, that video was David's video. He orchestrated the video before he was arrested and they showed it in court. So take that as you will. So in order for the defense to prove that David and Cynthia were not responsible for this, they had to figure out a way to prove that someone else was. And for them, that someone else was a man named Perez Hernandez. Perez Hernandez was a convicted sex offender and had been an old neighbor of the Dewalaby family and was not arrested until after Jacqueline's disappearance. Perez had kidnapped a seven-year-old girl a year prior to Jacqueline's disappearance. He kidnapped her in the middle of the night while her whole family was sleeping and while her twin brother was only three feet away from her in the same room. Now, luckily, this seven-year-old girl did survive, and she claimed that Perez took her away from her home and brought her to a railroad bridge, which was about a mile away from where Jacqueline's body was discovered. So the defense's argument was that if Perez could do this once, he could do it again. The MO was the same. Both Jacqueline and this girl were seven years old. And even though forensics were not able to prove that Jacqueline was sexually assaulted because this seven-year-old girl that Perez had kidnapped was brutally sexually assaulted, even though forensics weren't able to prove that Jacqueline was, the defense said that it's just too close of a coincidence to think otherwise. However, the prosecution, on the other hand, had a counter-argument to this, and their counter-argument was that when Perez had kidnapped this seven-year-old 
21-year-old girl a year prior, he had left the crime scene an absolute disaster. He left a pack of cigarettes in the basement. When you walked into the kitchen, there was food everywhere on the floor. There was silverware thrown everywhere. It looked like a tornado had ran through this house. And so the prosecution was trying to argue that the MO was not exactly the same because it would be very unlikely for Perez to be so sloppy in his initial abduction, but then leave no trace left behind for Jacqueline's. Now, there was also a neighbor of the Dewallabies named Holly that testified that during the day on September 9th, she had seen that the Dewallabies were hanging their laundry on a clothesline outside. She mentioned that she saw a girl's bed sheet hung up, as well as a picture of a girl she had never recognized before. And the girl in the picture had long blonde hair, which was weird to her because Jacqueline had dark black hair. Holly said later that night while she was watching TV at home by herself, her four dogs began barking frantically. All four of them were standing at the side door of the house, which was the door that was closest to the Dwallaby home. And according to Holly, the barking lasted from about 11 p.m. to midnight. So it lasted on and off for about an hour. And Holly testified that her dogs only barked like that if there was a stranger and that the dogs knew the Dwallabies and liked them. And it was unusual for them to bark like that. However, she never went to check and see what they were barking barking at or who they were barking towards. Now, later that night and into the early morning hours of the 10th at about 1.30 a.m. to 2.10 a.m., somewhere within that time frame, Holly said she got up to go use the bathroom and also get a glass of water. Now, when Holly walked into her kitchen to get this glass of water, her kitchen faced the Dewallabies driveway. And she noticed when looking in the driveway that one of the Dewallaby cars was missing. She noticed that the only car that was sitting in the driveway was the blue Chevy Malibu, which was the car that Cynthia usually drove. But the car that David usually drove wasn't there. Another neighbor testified for the prosecution and stated that before September 9th, they saw Davy playing in the front yard with a rope that was extremely similar to the one found wrapped around Jacqueline's neck. Obviously, this was the prosecution's way of trying to prove that this was a pre-existing rope that the Dewallabies had. Now, prosecution also told the jury that something concerning to them about David was the fact that he had given them inconsistent statements in regards to the night of Jacqueline's disappearance. For example, initially, David told authorities that he kissed Jacqueline goodnight before she went to bed. However, he then changed his story and said that he never saw her that night after he got home from bowling. Now, at this point in the trial is when the prosecution brought up a new theory. And this is something that I'm sure as you have been listening that you may or may not have thought of already. And that is Anna Dewallaby. Anna testified that she left her home at around 10.30 p.m. and went to Papachino's. Then after that, a friend named Michael was able to confirm that he saw Anna at a restaurant called El Dorado's a little bit after midnight. 
The man who claimed to see Anna at El Dorado's was named Michael Healy. And according to Michael, he saw Anna at El Dorado's, the two of them got to talking, and the two of them ended up leaving together in the early morning hours and went back to his apartment. Now, that is a series of events that Michael claimed. However, within that series of events and within that timeline, that leaves a good two hours that Anna is unaccounted for, a good hour and a half to two hours, because there is no one who was able to confirm her whereabouts between 10.30 p.m. when she left the Dewallaby home and after midnight when Michael claims to have seen her at El Dorado's. There was no one who was able to confirm that she was at Papachino's. So that, again, is a good hour and a half where her whereabouts are unaccounted for. Now, in this trial, David and Cynthia did not testify, and after the closing arguments were made, the judge actually pulled aside the prosecution and the defense and told both of them that there was not enough evidence to prove that Cynthia was in any way, shape, or form involved in the death of her daughter, and so because of that, the judge dismissed the case against Cynthia. However, he did not dismiss the charges against David. So after Cynthia's case was dismissed, the jury deliberated for three days and ultimately found David DeWallaby guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 45 years in prison. And David spent almost two years in prison before July of 1990, when there was an article released by the Chicago Tribune that was written by a journalist named David Protess, who was a professor. Now, the article consisted of the case of Jacqueline DeWallaby and the verdict, the trial, all of it. And as a result of this article being published, there was a juror who contacted David Protest directly and told him that she regretted choosing the guilty verdict, but she felt pressure from the other jurors. Now, as a result of that, on October 30th of 1991, the Illinois Appellate Court reversed David's conviction. And not only did they reverse it, they reversed it without the possibility of a retrial and ordered for him to be immediately released. And at this point, he had spent five 583 days in prison. And a lot of people had very conflicting opinions about this, as you can imagine, because with this, because with the decision to have no possibility of a retrial, that meant that even if David did this, even if he was guilty, he wasn't going to have another trial to prove that. So now at this point, David is released from prison. And now we fast forward about nine months later when there was an Unsolved Mysteries episode made about this case. And again, this was in the early 1990s. And when that episode was released, a man named Timothy Guess, who was actually the brother of Jacqueline's biological father. So Jacqueline's biological father is Jim Guess, who, by the way, was incarcerated at the time of Jacqueline's disappearance and murder. Timothy Guess is the brother of Jim Guess, and Timothy Guess is someone who is a paranoid schizophrenic, and he had previously spoken to police during the investigation process and told them that on the night of Jacqueline's disappearance, he was at a 24-hour restaurant. So he stayed at this 24-hour restaurant called Harvey's. 
He said that he was there all throughout the night, but coincidentally enough, this restaurant is only 10 minutes away from the Diwalabi home. Now, at first, when the investigation process was going on, police spoke to the waitresses and waitstaff at this restaurant who confirmed Timothy's story that he stayed there all throughout the night. However, when the Unsolved Mysteries episode aired, those waitresses then came forward and told the police that Timothy did not stay there all night and he actually left shortly around 9.30 p.m., They claim that the reason that they went along with Timothy's story in the first place when they were first interviewed by police was because they truly believed that the Diwalabis were guilty and they just did not want to get involved. So they just went along with Timothy's story. Now, there was another waitress who actually worked at this same restaurant, and her name was Margaret. And Margaret came forward and spoke to David Protest, the man who wrote the article in the Chicago Tribune, and told him that on the night of Jacqueline's disappearance, Timothy had driven her home to her apartment. He offered her a ride, and Timothy drove her home to the apartment. That same apartment complex that Margaret lived in was the same apartment complex that Everett Mann lived in. And again, Everett Mann was the person who claimed that he saw a car in the abandoned parking lot that he assumed to be David that night. Now, David Protest did do an interview with Timothy, who claimed that he had been hearing voices since he was a young child. He also claimed that he knew the layout of the Diwalabi home without ever having been there himself. He claimed, quote, I walked past Davy's room. That was the spirit talking, not me. I didn't say nothing. I just released the information, end quote. So Timothy very much is all up in the air in regards to his recounting of that night, but Timothy also mentioned a very specific detail about the case, which was the fact that Jacqueline's closet light was left on that night, which was a detail that was not released to the public. So there was no way that Timothy was going to be able to know that detail without knowing that detail or without it just being a coincidence and a lucky guess. But again, he did say that Jacqueline's closet light was left on that night. And honestly, you guys, that is where we stand on this case. And to this day, it remains unsolved. And there are so many different theories and avenues as to what could have possibly happened to Jacqueline. You have the possibility that David DeWallaby or David and Cynthia were involved. That's theory number one. Theory number two is that Anna DeWallaby was involved, whether that be Anna and David together or whether that be Anna herself. Is it hypothetically possible that Anna could have gone out that night on her Friday night and met a group of the wrong people who overheard that she had a granddaughter, a seven-year-old granddaughter sleeping in her home? Also a possibility. Is it possible that Timothy was involved? That's also a possibility. Is it possible that Perez Hernandez was involved? that's a possibility too. The possibilities here are endless and I am very interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one. Now where I stand on this is I have a lot of suspicion when it comes to Anna and David. It just seems a little odd and just due to the past cases that we have covered, it doesn't seem out of the question for me that if Anna was out and about on her Friday night having fun partying 
And if someone knew that she had a granddaughter at home, that someone wouldn't have acted on that. And if she came across the wrong person, intentionally or unintentionally, I think it's a possibility. Again, all hypothetical, all alleged, it's still unsolved. And I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one. So with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys. Bye guys.